So today, as we begin a four-week series in the book of Ruth with a, a glorious intermission of Easter Sunday, here's what I'm wondering. What comes to mind for you, if anything, when you think about this particular book, the book of Ruth? Some of you may be drawing a blank, and that's okay. Others of you may be drawing on the way the story of Ruth is often told in uh, children's Bibles like the one you may have grown up reading. See, most of the time this book is framed as a great romance that unexpectedly unfolds between Boaz, the land-owning Israelite bachelor, and Ruth, the youthful Moabitess who wouldn't take no for an answer. In short, Bible, meet Disney. And it's true that romance is in the air. For the book of Ruth, we do have an incredible love story being told. It's just not that kind of love story. For in the book of Ruth, we have a romance, but it's, it's much more compelling to see this as a God-sized love story. That's how we're going to be looking at the book. It's a God-sized love story because it contributes to the much larger narrative of Scripture, which is a message about God's loving and gracious initiative to redeem a fallen humanity and a created order through the climactic work and person of Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible is about, and therefore, that's what each and every part of the Bible is about and ultimately points to. So the ultimate purpose of this book, made very clear, especially in the last chapter, is to alert us to the fact that in the midst of the crippling calamity and sorrow we're about to see, God was lovingly at work preparing the way for His Son to come into the world, that He would accomplish His people's redemption, that He might be glorified for all eternity. This is an all-important perspective to keep in mind as we begin chapter 1 today and what seems like a very strange way to begin a kind of love story. For we have in Ruth 1 one of the most tragedy-filled chapters in all the Bible. We begin, as the sermon title indicates, in the absolute worst of times. And what I hope we'll see today in this first chapter of Ruth is that in the worst of times, we must fight to see God as our advocate and not our adversary. In the worst of times, we must fight to see God as our advocate and not our adversary. And we're going to see that today through what happens to a woman named Naomi. We'll see first how it was the worst of times for Naomi in verses 1 to 5, then how there emerges a glimmer of hope in the midst of these times in verses 6 to 18, and finally, how it was the worst of times for Mara in verses 19 to 22. But before we jump in, let's pray together uh, for this time. Father, we call upon you now to give us another good gift, the gift of your Spirit's presence and illuminating as we open your word, as I preach it today, and as we hear it. May we have ears to hear, hearts that are soft and prepared to hear and respond to what your word sets before us. Do a good work in us for Christ's glory today and throughout this series in this book of Ruth. Thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So let's begin by looking again at verses 1 to 5 and the worst of times for Naomi. From the get-go here, the tragedy level is through the roof. 
building and building these five verses to where by the end of them, we have a completely devastated woman. Starting the first verse, the, the worst of times start rolling for Naomi because first and foremost, this was the worst of times for Israel. How do we know that? The narrator only has to give us one signal. This took place during the days when the judges ruled. With that phrase alone, a whole set of negative associations would have come to mind to anyone familiar with Israel's history. The period of the judges, recounted the book just before Ruth in our English Bibles, was perhaps Israel's darkest chapter as a nation. Indeed, it's summarized in the refrain that's heard again and again as Israel falls into round after round of idolatry and disobedience. And that refrain is, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. It's the equivalent of us setting the scene of a story with something like, it was a dark and stormy night. Not good, right? But then in addition to it being the time of the judges, the worst of times continues to build, as we learn in verse 1, that there was still, there was a severe famine in the land at that time. Now, many of us may not have a, a real reaction to that piece of information, but it would have signaled crisis mode in the ancient world as it does in many areas of the world still today. But as tough as that reality would have been, we then hear that because of this famine, what seemed to be the main characters of this story, a man with his wife and two sons, ended up leaving the promised land and God's covenant people to go to Moab. Now, we hear Moab, we probably find ourselves thinking something like this. Hmm, sounds like a great place to visit. They, they probably have some really good food. How, that sounds like we should make our next, next trip plan to Moab. But the original readers would have heard Moab, and they would have heard a dun-dun-dun immediately in their mind. Okay, minor key. This is not good as well. See, Moab was a hated, a despised place and people to Israel. They were one of Israel's traditional enemies, descendants of Lot and the shady portion of Father Abraham's family tree. There was, you could say, really bad blood between these two groups. And the truth is, any Israelite who heard that this family left the promised land and God's people to head to Moab would have immediately thought, these folks are playing with fire right now. And then the bottom drops out. Not a second after we learn the names and origins of our would-be protagonist, we learn that Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies, making Naomi a widow overnight. Now, being a widow in the ancient world was bad enough, but thankfully at this point, she still had two sons, Malion and Kilion. See, in a patriarchal society like Israel and Moab, having men who could bring protection and provision to you and your family was absolutely vital. Her sons still keep Naomi from descending into the abyss of helpless, voiceless widowhood. But these sons make a decision that every good Israelite would have at best frowned upon and at worst outright condemned as apostasy. They marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And now, what was once perhaps a temporary sojourn from Israel to escape the harsh famine has become a shamefully permanent settling in of the family in a foreign land with foreign customs and Worst of all, foreign gods. All that is bad enough, 
And then we learn, after 10 years in Moabite country, Malion and Kilion died, prompting the narrator to inform us bluntly, and so Naomi was left without her two sons and without her husband. Naomi is now a lone woman in a man's world, and she happens to be a sojourner in a foreign land miles and miles away from the closest community that would even think about caring for her. Before this book is barely off the ground, we have a woman who, in a flash, it seems, went from a protected, happily married mother of two sons who were, no doubt, her glory and boast all the day, to a sojourning, childless widow who was dirt poor with the prospect of only descending deeper and deeper into complete destitution. One author has this to say about the situation Naomi suddenly finds herself in. She says, This was the worst possible scenario for a widow. The light had gone out in the Elimelech household, extinguished on Naomi's watch. The deaths of Malion and Kilion bereaved Naomi of her beloved children, wiped out her life's work as a woman, and brought the curtain down with a merciless thud on the future. She ends by saying, When they buried Naomi's sons, they were essentially burying Naomi too. I hope you're getting the picture. Do you see how the world of this woman has just come crashing down upon her with Job-like suddenness and intensity? In fact, many commentators have noted that we have in Naomi a female equivalent of the ill-fated Job in Scripture. There are differences in their story and their relationship to God through it. But the similarities are striking. These characters both experience losses of an inestimable nature, losing everything that's dear to them. They both, as we'll see, agonize in bewilderment with their God, who they're not afraid to wrestle with and accuse even. And they both utter just bitter, bitter laments which mirror each other in certain ways. And see, these opening lines that sound the female Job's death knell, they serve as a a surprise beginning to this story. We we know lots of stories with surprise endings, right? That's that's pretty common. But in the prologue of this story, we have what looks like it's going to be a story about these men, right? Perhaps about how their, their family survives the famine through hard work and grit and maybe even a renewed faith in the Lord that comes about through these circumstances. But then in just five short verses, death swipes the men completely off the scene of this story, leaving behind three grieving widows. And far from the story being over, which it must have felt like to them, as husbandless, sonless women in a completely male-dominated society, it's only here with an all-female cast that the narrative really gets going. And so before we go on with their story, I think we do well at this point to ask, have you ever had one of these worst of times kinds of moments? A time when the, the hinges of your life just completely came off and you found yourself feeling like life is just caving in on you. Have you ever experienced a time of utter despair, a dark night of the soul as it can be known? If you have, I I want to encourage you to reflect on that experience as we move into this story 
together. Compare notes with Naomi and ask yourself what sort of things you learned about yourself through that, about this fallen world, and about God in the midst of what you had to walk through and maybe are still walking through. And if you haven't had one of those earth-shattering moments yet, let me just say, I doubt Naomi had had one either at that point. See, nobody can prepare for this kind of devastation. It just blows in unexpectedly like a tornado. And before you know it, the house you thought you'd sleep in the rest of your days is, is just in shambles. Even if we've never had a worst of times moment, we can take instruction from Naomi's. For the Lord desires that we listen and learn from what she experienced by his hand and see how he is indeed at work as her advocate rather than her adversary. There's the struggle. It could be very important instruction for whenever your worst of times moment might come. Okay. Now we're going to move to look at verses 6 to 18 at the glimmer of hope that emerges in the worst of times. This section of the passage begins with the first bit of good news that we've heard so far. The very first glimmer of hope that seems to break into the seemingly hopeless situation. Word reaches Moab that the Lord has come to the aid of his people by giving them food. The famine was over by God's grace, and so Naomi and it seems her daughter-in-laws pack up to head back to Israel. But before they get too far, Naomi's interaction, uh, intention becomes clear for she urges her daughters-in-law to return to their mother's house. That is their home of origin, the, the, where they might find the embrace of another husband. For indeed, in the world they live in, different from our own in many ways, another husband was the only way, humanly speaking, that they're going to find the security and provision that they need. Now, the way Naomi puts this encouragement is both interesting and important. For one, she recognizes that it's the Lord alone who will provide them this rest. As she says in verse 9, that it's the Lord who will grant them another husband. But even more significantly, Naomi uses a very important word in verse 8, and it's a key word throughout the entire book, and that's the Hebrew word hesed which the ESV translates as kindness here. Now, there, there's no one English word that can kind of convey Hesed's complexity. This is a, a word that expresses, especially within close relationships, connotations of covenant loyalty, faithfulness, kindness, goodness, mercy, love, and compassion. Needless to say, it's no small thing that Naomi blesses her daughters-in-law by saying, as you have shown this has said, this deep-rooted covenant faithfulness to your dead husbands and to me, so now may the Lord show you his has said, his covenant faithfulness. With those words of deep blessing and a kiss goodbye, Naomi hopes to send Orpah and Ruth on their way back to their homes and their homeland. And this is met with an insistence on the part of both these younger widows that they will indeed go back with Naomi. And at this point, we're, we're trying to figure out, you know, is this just a nice outward formality, kind of a, you know, a, a liturgy of sorts? Oh, yeah, no, we're going to go with you. Or, or is this a deep-seated conviction being expressed? And with their insistence press on, Naomi shifts into another gear, recognizing she's got she's to call upon a stronger arsenal 
to convince these ladies to head back home. So for one, she steps up the emotional game by now referring to them not as her daughters-in-law, but with a touch of great tenderness as her daughters, her, her very own daughters. She's making a very heartfelt appeal to these women that she clearly loves and, and has bonded with. And that's where things get significant. See, the reasons that Naomi gives to why Ruth and Orpah should not follow her back to Israel give us great insights into how she views her tragic situation and how she views God in relationship to it. So what are those reasons? Well, first we see in verses 11 to 13 that Naomi understands that she can't provide what these women really need, husbands. Now, if you're reading this and you're like, whoa, Naomi, you've gone off the reservation here. You're talking about having another son, and then Orpah and Ruth will wait on that son to be old enough to, to marry. Um, you know, if, if you think that sounds a little crazy, hey, you know, you might be a little crazy too after having gone through what she's gone through. But actually, what's in the background here is the ancient practice of leveret marriage, where a, a, a dead husband's brother had an obligation to the widow to marry her in her brother's stead, his brother's stead, or at the very least to seek to have a child with that woman to carry on his dead brother's legacy and family line. Okay? Sounds a little strange to our ears, right? But in that day and age, that was the expectation. And Naomi is saying to these ladies loud and clear, listen, there's no more brothers here for you to marry, Okay? There's no more ways that I'm going to be able to have a son and that you're going to be able to have this leveret responsibility come true. That's not going to happen here. This is a dead end. And he wants these ladies to see that she is a dead end when it comes to any future prospects of the husband department for Orpah and Ruth. But reason number two is even more telling. Reason number two is essentially this. Naomi says, essentially, I'm hopeless and cursed. So why would you want to be anywhere near me? Notice that Naomi says in verse 12, even if I thought there was still hope for me, with the implication she doesn't think there's any hope for her anymore. Why not? Well, here we unearth the real struggle going on for Naomi in all this. Look again at verse 13. Naomi says with passion, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Wow. Naomi sees herself as essentially cursed by God, having become his enemy somehow. And so she essentially warns them to join her company is to join the company of those whom the Lord is dead set against. Indeed, she expressed this with another word that's very significant in the book, the word bitter here. Naomi's expressing with no reservation that it is the Lord who has made her life bitter, and she's trying to convince Orpah and Ruth to get out before the bitterness overwhelms their life as well. And in verse 14, we see that Naomi has built up a pretty convincing case about why she's not the best mother-in-law to stick with after all, Right? And Orpah, after a, a tender embrace and kiss goodbye, heads back to Moab. While Ruth, it says, clung to her, a term that 
kind of brings in the strong bond, not easily broken. Seeing that she has more work to do with Ruth, Naomi uses Orpah's leaving as a third reason that Ruth should head back. She needs to join her sister-in-law in doing the responsible thing, going back to the land and the people and the gods that they were familiar with. In the ancient world, heading to Israel from Moab wasn't like heading from the U.S. to Canada. There were so many deep things wrapped up in the ethnicity and nationality and localized deities at that time that such a move was monumental and almost always extremely foolish. See, Orba's refusal to go with Naomi is very important in the story for contrast's sake. Not because she's selfish or wicked, but because she's sensible. Orpa, unlike Ruth, listens to reason and heeds the words of worldly wisdom. She accepts the cumulative case that Naomi has made against herself, against any future of, ahead of them in, in Bethlehem, and ultimately against Naomi's God and the unyielding tragedy he seems to bring upon his people. Orpa listens and goes back, and the truth is, we can't blame her. But boy, is Ruth's refusal and vow all the more stunning in comparison. I mean, listen again to what Ruth says here. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. When you die, I will die. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Whoa, pretty convincing. And this, this sort of vow is, is really unthinkable in their world. And, and make no mistake, this is an act of deep faith going on here. Deep faith on Ruth's part in the God of Israel, whom she has learned about, for better or worse, from Elimelech's household, and now she appeals to that same God whom she calls her own at this point in pronouncing a curse upon herself if even death itself came between these two women. If Naomi has been compared with Job, Ruth, for good reason, has been compared to Abraham for her great faith in Yahweh to leave her homeland despite everything pointing to the contrary. This is faith leading to stunning courage and loyalty to a mother-in-law that she had every reason to get a thousand miles away from. And of course, Naomi can't refuse her. Would you try to refuse this woman <laughs> at this point? Ruth will not be deterred. And, and she makes that absolutely clear. Her faith and her vow are resolved. And so Naomi yields. And off they head on what seems like a death march back to Bethlehem. Now it should be clear that a glimmer of hope stands out here amidst the worst of times. And it comes in Ruth and her confession of faith that leads to her vow of undying faithfulness to Naomi. But what we're probably not struck by, as we should, is that that glimmer of hope comes from a Moabite woman of all people. In the midst of Israel and Naomi's darkest hour, God was at work moving his plan of redemption forward, and he was doing it through the last figure on earth that anyone would have thought. I wonder today if some of us are in a worst of times scenario right now, 
and need to be reminded that God is indeed at work, that there are glimmers of hope all around if we raise up our eyes from the rubble and are able to see it. Part of how we have to fight to see God as our advocate and not our adversary in the midst of the storm is by remembering that oftentimes the glimmer of hope comes in ways and via packages that we often least expect it to come in. So where was or where is the glimmer of hope in your worst of times? Where was or where is God at work in a way that you least expect? Reminding you through it all that God hasn't left you or forsaken you, though it may very well feel that way. And EBF, wasn't that how it was with Christ? The one who the religious scholars and the political leaders looked upon and scoffed at and mocked and thought was the last one that God could possibly be at work in? Right? They wouldn't have crucified him otherwise. And yet look at what God did through him to demonstrate once and for all that he was indeed our advocate and not our adversary. If you're in the storm today, I hope you'll take encouragement from that glimmer of hope and whatever other glimmers the Lord is pleased to bring in if we would have eyes to see them, if we would fight to see them. Well, that takes us to the last section of our passage today. We see in verses 19 to 22, the worst of times for Mara. Let's read those verses again, picking back up in verse 19. The text says, So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. And the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So we're back in Bethlehem where there is a stir in the whole town as our two women stumble in. In all probability, the women of the town are shocked and a little embarrassed by what they see. A withered and broken Naomi, accompanied by an unknown foreigner, rather than her husband and sons, whom they would have known. And so they ask in astonishment, can, can this be Naomi? Our Naomi? who left with such life and now looks like death itself? And Naomi, by this point, is ready to reply, having had lots of time to mull over her accursed situation. And in her reply, we get her reading of what she's been through and her reading of whether the Lord is indeed her advocate or adversary. And she decides in a bit of dramatic flair to communicate her destitution and defeat with a name change with words that we can imagine just dripping with animosity and resentment, she says, don't you dare call me Naomi anymore. The sweetness, the pleasantness that once defined my life and made that name mine, that died a long time ago. Instead, you must now call me Mara, 
because more than anything else, bitterness defines who I am through and through. But getting even more at the heart of the matter, she says something very significant at the end of verse 20 that tells us so much about her perspective on everything she's been through. Why does she say that she should be called Mara, which means bitter, rather than Naomi, which means pleasant? Why does she think her life has become very bitter? It's because the Lord, the Almighty One, has made it so. Listen to her pour out her heart in verse 21 as it relates to the Lord being the author of all this. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? From pleasant to bitter, from fullness to emptiness, from family and flourishing and life itself to widowhood, destitution, and death's doorstep. From the best of times to the worst of times. Why, in Naomi's estimation? Because the Lord deemed that it would be so. The Lord chose to afflict her. The Lord chose to bring misfortune upon her. The Lord went from being her advocate to being her adversary in her mind. And it's amazing because there are glimmers of hope trying to break in this horizon of depression and death, but it's to no avail. I mean, there's Ruth standing right behind her with her, a Moabite daughter-in-law who's made a covenant vow to her. And Naomi is able to say without hesitation, I've come back completely empty. In verse 22, we have another reminder of hope and the fact that God has provided food for his people so they could escape the famine. And, and now Naomi's back in her home and the famine's over and the barley harvest is about to begin and it's all drowned out by Naomi's bitter words and embittered heart. She just can't see it. Of course, we know that when people are depressed, it's often the toughest moment to see any signs of hope, right, when they emerge. When you were down, it looks like everything is ten shades darker than how it really is, right? We know that. But at root, what the book of Ruth wants to set before us is not Naomi's depressed state, but rather Naomi's wounded heart and how her theology intersects with that. I hope you've seen Naomi's wounded heart here in spades. That's on display fully. This is a woman who's just undone. Life is over for her. She's been cut to the heart. It's evident from the moment this book opens. And I hope it is clear that this book, as with the entire Bible, addresses people who feel battered and beat up by life. Is that you today? Eugene Peterson puts this so well when he says, no literature is more realistic and honest in facing the harsh facts of life than the Bible. At no time, he says, is there the faintest suggestion that the life of faith exempts us from difficulties. On the contrary, every page of the Bible recognizes that faith encounters troubles. Part of what this text is calling us to do is pause in the midst of Naomi's agony and recognize some of our own. To recognize that the life of faith is hard and comes with trials that can be brutal, even devastating. To rush on to the love story of Ruth and Boaz 
without stopping to notice Naomi's shattered life would be to miss so much of the power and message of this book, right? This doesn't belong in a Disney story, right? (laughs) But see, this book also addresses not just people going through hard times, but people who believe they're going through hard times because of God. See, Naomi was right on target in one part of her theology that we often shy away from as modern believers, and and that is indeed that the Lord is the one who ultimately brings about the calamity that happens in the life of His people. Naomi was entirely ready in the midst of the terrors that came her way to unflinchingly affirm that they came not as a result of chance or ill fate, but from the Lord's own hand. God's sovereignty over the famine and the trip to Moab and the death of the three men she loved the most was was never in question for her. What was in question, as we have seen, was God's goodness amidst it all. In Naomi's mind, God was certainly great. He was the Almighty, after all. But at the end of the day, God wasn't good as well. He was holy, all right but not loving. At the end of the day, he was found mistakenly to be the all-powerful adversary rather than the all-powerful advocate. And this is why we've said that today we're called to see that in the worst of times, we as God's people must fight to see God as our advocate and not our adversary. It's a fight. It's a struggle. It's not going to come easy. Faith in both the sovereignty and goodness of God together is a fight when the roof is caving in on you. And do you believe that? Can you identify with that? Have you experienced the struggle, the fight, to believe that God is indeed good for you rather than against you when your back is against the wall and the worst of times come crashing in? That's a real live question for each of us. Because that's what we have in Ruth chapter 1. To inform us and shape us and sharpen us and prepare us for that moment whenever and wherever it might come. The truth is, such a moment will come in your life if it hasn't already. The worst of times descend upon us. It's not a question of if, but when. And when it does come, it's like a refining fire that reveals what's truly there, where our trust truly is. So today I have to ask you, where are you like Naomi? If you can be honest for a moment, where are you bitter with God? Over suffering and loss and disappointment that has happened or is happening or you're afraid will happen in your life someday? Where has your life, past, present, or future, gone from pleasantness to bitterness, from fullness to emptiness, from life to death? Where is your life utterly barren, like Naomi's was, as she barely was able to crawl back to Bethlehem that day? Wherever that is or has been for you, remember the message we hear from Ruth 1 that we see develop so strongly throughout the book. Remember, we're not done with the book. We're just getting started. And we're going to see in the worst of times as God's people, we must fight to see God as our advocate, not our adversary, and we do that together 
as God's people. You're not alone in that struggle. You're not alone in that fight. We fight it together. Wherever that has been, we need to ask, how do we know that he's our advocate after all? Right? That's the next question. How do we really know that? That he is really for us rather than against us when our personal circumstances tell us otherwise? Where do we go? Well, we look to the person that God was preparing to raise up through the providential circumstances we've just beheld today. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the one who went through a darker night than Naomi or Job or any of us will ever have to go through. The one who was truly cursed by God in our stead. Jesus Christ, the one who passed on the pleasantness of life and instead tasted the bitterness of betrayal and abandonment and mockery for us. Jesus Christ, the one who went from the fullness of eternal, blissful communion with the Father and the Holy Spirit to the emptiness of becoming a fragile, finite human being and then going to a Roman cross. Jesus Christ, the one who is the author of life itself, walking through the darkest valley and experiencing death, physical and spiritual, so that we wouldn't have to. Brothers and sisters, do you see how this book is telling us that God is mysteriously at work even in the darkest hours for our good and his glory. Here in the dark night of Naomi's soul, the Lord was preparing the way for the most important event in human history, the salvation of God's people through the work of his son, descended from a Moabite woman named Ruth who came to Bethlehem because of Naomi's worst of times. How is he at work in your dark night? We know that God is our advocate rather than our adversary, not because of our circumstances, but because of what God has done for us in Christ. When it looks as if everything is over, we're tempted to despair and become embittered, and we all are and will at some point, we look to Christ and remember that God is for us. The sacrifice of his precious son is the living proof. He's our glimmer of hope that becomes a beacon. Let's look to that beacon now together. Let's pray as we head to the table. Father, we again thank you for your word today. Thank you for the, the harsh realities that your word speaks to, recognizes true in this fallen, broken world, in the lives of your people. And thank you most of all for the way that it points us to this incredibly rich truth that though our circumstances make it feel that you are against us, we know because of what you have done in your Son that you are for us, eternally so. Help us to see that. Help those in this room who are experiencing the worst of times right now to have that sort of vision, to look beyond the rubble and to see how you are at work and to experience your Spirit's powerful work in their hearts of encouragement and, and of pressing on and fighting the good fight of the faith. Help all of us in that regard. We pray and continue to do this work in and through us as we study 
and reflect on this book and what it has to teach us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.